Good evening. And welcome to the National Library of Australia this evening. I'm Catherine Favell, Director of Community Outreach Branch. And thank you for joining us to celebrate the publication of Alex Miller's new book, The Passage of Love. Our two speakers this evening were both born in a far distant land before deciding to make Australia their home. So as we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and I thank their elders past and present for caring for the land that we're all now privileged to call our home. I'm sure all of you are here this evening because at some point in your reading life you've fallen in love with one of Alex's 12 books. The Passage of Love is Lucky 13, although as Alex just pointed out, it's his 12th novel, but his 13th book. Alex's works have received many accolades and prizes and they've been published widely in translation. Of course, he's a two-time winner of the Biles Franklin Literary Award in 1993 for The Ancestor Game and again in 2003 for Journey to the Stone Country. Alex's many books, both in English and in translation, are held here in the National Library's collection. And Alex was also recognised by the Friends of the National Library at their 2011 celebration event. He was recognised for his contribution to the creation of books and book culture in Australia. And some of you may have well been at that event too. Alex, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the library again this evening. And joining Alex is his dear friend, Dr Adrian Caesar. Adrian's a writer and a poet whose work, The White, Last Days in the Antarctic Journeys of Scott and Mawson, 1911 to 1913, won a Victorian Premier's Literary Award in 2000. And if you haven't read his recent novel, The Blessing, then you really should. Tonight we're going to eavesdrop on the conversation of two old friends talking about Alex's new novel, The Passage of Love. Please welcome them both. Thank you. And thank you, Catherine, for inviting me to uh, have this chat. It's a lovely occasion for me, um, and in a sense, a, a public celebration of a long friendship. Um, and a friendship which has its basis, I suppose, in, in literature. Um, and my enormous admiration for Alex's work. He has been an inspiration to me uh, in many ways. And to my mind, he's the finest contemporary novelist writing in English. So it, it's a privilege for me to, to share this occasion. We're going to be, I'm, I'm going to say a few words about the book. Um, some of you may have read it already, some of you may have not. So I mean, I don't want to be like the reviewer who gives away the whole show. But uh, it is a book that's uh, the materials of which uh, come from Alex's life. It concerns a young man, Robert Crofts, who comes to Melbourne from working out in, in Queensland as a stockman. And the young man's search for meaning, his uh, conceiving an ambition to become a writer and his struggle to achieve that, while at the same time uh, developing a sense of self through three relationships described in the book with women. So the quest for love and the quest to become a writer seem to me to be interwoven in this rich and complex way. And the whole book seems to me about 
becoming, a sense of self, a sense trying to search for a sense of authenticity, a sense of meaning against uh, the existential darkness with which the character is threatened on several occasions. I don't think I want to say any more about that until later on, but I thought it might be good if Alex read a passage um, to begin with. And um, he suggested the passage, I think, um, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, 312 to 300 and I think 16. Yeah. And um, the couple at the centre of the book, Robert Crofts, and if any of you have read my first novel, Watching the Climbers on the Mountain, which came out in 88, I think, uh, the uh, young stockman in that is called Robert Croft. So I kind of thought, yep, you know, why not? That's the guy. It was me then, it's still me now. It was him then and it's them now and, you know, why change it? In fact, my wife first pointed out to me that I'd spelt it wrongly. <laughs> it was my mother's maiden name and I thought, why not? Um, uh, you know, people say, I, I, uh, my grandfather was so-and-so and, -so, and I'd say, which one? I said, oh, granddad, you know. And they always mean their father's father, usually, uh, and their women too. So it's just in us, it's bred in us. And um, these two people have had a terrible time. They've had 300 pages of it. And um, <laughs> they're really struggling as a couple, but they love each other. What that means, God only knows. As Prince Charles said to Diana famously, whatever that means, and has been lampooned for it ever since. But it also is something, what is it? People kill for it, people struggle with it, but it's something that has a power of its own over us. And when I say love, I don't mean sex. I mean love of children, love of family, love of place. The impossible love that you conceive for somebody, and there's no reason behind it. It's something in you and them that joins you. They are joined in that way. People say to me, why did he stay with her? Because he loved her. Um, okay, so he's had a terrible time trying to be a writer, and he's given up writing. He's abandoned it to save her life. The doctor has said, if you don't get a decent job, mate, your wife's going to die. It's that bad. Things are that bad. So he's been advised, he went to the University Appointments Board and asked them what to do and they said, well, Canberra is, um, the government is putting people on, um, apply to them for a job and he did and he got a job as a um, research assistant in the Department of External Territories where he was asked to read about um, African post-colonial situations in order to equip him to um, help design an education system for Papua New Guinea, which made perfect sense. <laughs> so they arrive in Canberra and she has decided she can see him sort of dying in the spirit, having given up writing, but determined to go on with her, with Canberra, with this situation as a public servant. And she decides that she's going to help him reclaim a writing life. She's perfectly sincere about that. On the weekend, they went together and bought an expensive new portable typewriter and a new desk and an office chair and a pale pinewood bookcase. 
and they set them up in the spare bedroom. And that afternoon, he unpacked his books from the boxes Dr. Edie had sent and set them in the shelves of the bookcase. Lena came in and stood in the doorway and told him dinner was ready. Looks wonderful, she said. And she went up to him and kissed him on the lips. Yes, he said, looking around. It's not bad, is it? It's wonderful. Come and have your dinner. After dinner, he went back into the spare room, which they were to call the study. And he closed the door and sat at the desk and he smoked a cigarette. And he gazed through the uncurtained floor-to-ceiling windows into the dark mass of the trees over beyond the bare earth of the garden where the bulldozer had scraped off the vegetation so the house could be built. This is 50 years ago in Canberra. He rolled a sheet of paper into the typewriter. It was a Helvetia, not an Olivetti like his old one. Lena was playing the piano, scales, her fingers running up and down the keys like a rabbit at a wire fence looking for a way out. He tapped out the title, Frankie. Why call it Frankie? It was himself too, wasn't it? He couldn't remember how he had begun. He'd already written a version of this book in Sydney without really thinking about it. He'd sat down and written it. It had taken him away. He thought hard, but could not. no image came into his mind. He stared at the paper in the roller with the title in the middle of it and said aloud, Frankie and me. It sounded silly, made him feel embarrassed. He smoked another of the tailor-made cigarettes that he'd changed to. The tobacco was hot and dry in his throat and he got up and went out into the kitchen and fetched a beer from the fridge. Lena was sitting on a little round stool at the Ronish in the front room. She paused in her playing and smiled at him. How's it going? It's going well. He flourished the bottle of beer and went down the passage and into the study. He shut the door and sat in the office chair and drank the beer and smoked another cigarette and looked out the window into the dark forest. How to start? Where to start? Where had he begun in Sydney? He hadn't thought about it then. He had just started. It had started itself. He sat staring out into the night, drinking the beer and smoking the cigarette. He decided to write a summary just setting out the various stages of the story with no detail. He knew them, after all, those stages. This happens and that happens, that kind of thing. On Sunday, he went back into the study and sat at the desk. He heard Lena go out the front door. A while later, she came back. She began playing the piano. The sound of the piano was loud and insistent, and it was all he could think about. He went on with the summary of his story, a dead mechanical exercise. The room was chilly. He would buy a heater. And maybe get some curtains. Magpies were finding things to stab at in the bare ground. He felt sick. When he got up to leave the study on Sunday evening, he screwed up everything he'd written and decided to buy a waste paper basket. <laughs> On Monday morning, he was glad all he had to do was to put on his suit and tie and go into the office and read about post-colonial life in Kenya. 
It had shocked him to discover over the weekend that his imagination couldn't be coerced. He hadn't known that, but could hide in its black hole and refuse to be enticed out into the open. It wasn't enough simply to want to write. Did he want to write? There had to be something else. Whatever that something else was, it was missing. He felt burdened and unhappy. He thought of the shiny green Helvetia waiting for him on his new desk in the spare room of their rented house on the hill at the edge of the forest. The red light blinking on the mountain, warning of the coming disaster. After dinner, he went into the study and sat on the floor next to the bookshelf and looked at Camus' The Outsider. It was a book everyone had read at university. Now, where was the magic in the prose? He opened the book and read the first sentence, quote, Mother died today, or maybe yesterday, I can't remember, full stop. <coughs> it was all very straightforward. He read a couple of pages and was soon engrossed in the story and forgot to think about the words. He was confident there was nothing unusual or special about the writing. It was just ordinary words strung together, one simple sentence after another. He took Lena's copy of Jane Eyre off the shelf and opened it. Quote, there was no possibility of taking a walk that day. It was raining. Unquote put the book back in its place and picked out Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. First sentence. A squat grey building of 34 storeys. Full stop. He lit a cigarette and leaned his back against the wall. All he had to do was write the story. He got up and sat at the desk. He put a fresh sheet of paper in the typewriter and sat staring at it. The spirit in which he had written Frankie and Sydney was missing, and he was unable to conjure it up. He realised Lena had stopped playing the piano some time ago. Was she listening for the tick, tick, tick of the Helvetia? He'd thought he knew how to write. He felt rebuked. It was as if he had returned to the home of an old friend and knocked on the door and discovered his friend had left years ago without ever telling him. Nobody was home. Kenya, the Mau Mau, Jomo Kenyatta, the Kikuyu's fight for freedom. That was real. The reports and histories he was reading in the office of the Department of External Territories. He felt lonely, empty. He missed himself. Where was he? It was him. He was the friend who wasn't at home. Maybe this was a punishment. He smoked another cigarette and looked at his watch. It was nearly 10. He would leave the study at 10.30 and Lena would say, when can I read something? It's a wonderful evocation of, of a kind of sense of hollowness to me. And it, it comes after the energy of the description of the first draft of Frankie when Robert Crofts has written with a kind of astonishing um, and consuming energy and then into that place. And that sense of alienation from self 
is overcome when Robert Crofts makes another manoeuvre to go to Araluen. And is it both space and occupation that helps to heal him? I mean, Robert Crofts moving from Canberra, taking his suit off and going back and working on the land again, in a sense. Is, is that your sense of it, that that's, that was part of the process of bringing him back to, it, to the self that could, could write? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I'd, um, I honestly don't know. I don't have any great special understanding about these things. I know things happen. The point is that the book... The, this stuff that I was reading out to you, 90% of this book is a life of a third person, a him, a he, that silly bloke, that young fellow I used to be, had no idea of what was to happen to him, where this was all to lead. We don't have prescience, or we would have all won the Melbourne Cup. We'd have all picked the winner. We don't have prescience, we have hindsight. And the book is written by an 80-year-old author, me, with hindsight, the man who knows where this boy is, where this young man is going. I call them boys now, if they're 30 or something like that. You know, boys and girls. And um, I say to Steph, the girl who introduced me the other day, and then I remember she said, I'm nearly 42. I think, I should be calling her a woman, come on, you know. But, um, should I? But, uh, so the book is written from a point of view that knows the future of this young man. The young man, however, and that's as why it's in the third person, if you want to unravel the emotional undercurrents and threads and floods and droughts in a person's life, in a sense, you need to be able to observe them from a distance. Steph says, you've been trying to write this book for 30 years. She knows my diaries. She's been through all my diaries going, we've been together 43 years. She's going through all my old diaries. Uh, it's part, uh, her exercise, I think, is related to some kind of, she's writing something about our, us and our lives together. So she knows all these things that I've forgotten and she says, oh, you tried to write this 30 years ago, then you tried to write it, and remember that other thing you wrote that you discarded, and I think, oh, my God, lucky I didn't know that when I was writing this. <laughs> because in a sense, that, that sort of knowledge is the sort of knowledge that closes down your imagination a bit. What doesn't close down the imagination, I think, and I think his discovery, the imagination cannot be coerced, is a very important one. And you see it if you get um, comedians um, on, let's say, the ABC or, or, or SBS, because they're the only programmes I ever inadvertently watch for half a minute or two before I turn them off again, swearing and going back out to the kitchen and picking up another book or writing something or just turning the radio on. It's supposed to be a comedy, so the people are dressed in slightly funny clothes and they laugh, they scream with laughter at everything and you don't know what they're laughing at. You can't catch up with whatever it was they're supposed to have said and the audience is all going, going crazy with laughter too and you think, fuck, what is it all about? You know, it's not funny. And then you think of the great comedies you've seen, those people who come onto the stage like Peter Ustinov in their perfect silence and self-containment and walk slowly towards where they think the microphone probably is and everyone's desperate to hold together their laughter already. It's very funny. Why? I don't know. 
It's a work of genius. That's what it is. But when you try and coerce funniness, to me it fails because it doesn't have the unexpected element that really... I mean, Stephen Romay said to me the other day, he's the editor, literary editor of The Australian, he said, there's a moment in this book, and I'd forgotten it, to be honest, where Lena and Robert... Um, Lena has recently had... Um, perhaps I shouldn't tell you the whole story. Mm. Anyway, they're, they're having a sort of life-death discussion. It's perfectly amicable. You're not, not going to have a fight or anything. They don't have physical fights. That never happens. But they're having this really difficult life-death discussion. And she says, I'm going to, she's been ill. I'm going to make an omelette for your dinner. She doesn't sort of eat much anymore. And so it's his dinner. And he thinks to himself in the middle of this life-death conversation, I hope you've bought some mushrooms. I can't stand those slippery omelettes without mushrooms or something in them. You know, and he, um, Stephen said, he cracked up when he read that. It's not funny in itself if you analyse it, but given the sort of tension, the stress of that situation, a thought like that suddenly thrown in, like um, in... Uh, Invitation to a Beheading, wonderful book, um, where the, the executioner says to the man he's going to kill in a minute, so how many sugars? Mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's wonderful. But it takes you totally away from where you are, that moment. So those things are kind of mysterious to me and I don't understand how to invoke them, but I know when they are invoked. And finding my voice after living in Canberra, I used to blame Canberra because when you're young, you blame your parents, you blame your environment, you blame the weather, you blame people, you blame other people. I never did blame other people very much, I have to say, but I did blame things, amorphous great things like Canberra, you know. I said to my um, publicist today, so what do you really think of Canberra? She said, it's inexcusable. <laughs> That's the best description I've ever heard of Canberra. I said, don't say that to a Canberran, or they'll spend the rest of their life defending the place to you. But um, <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. What were you saying? Oh, well, I was mentioning our alone. But, um, yeah. yeah. How it yeah. comes back. I, I, yeah. Really, I, I, I don't know, but it does but, come back. Yeah. Liberty. But, sure. But I'm interested also in, in, in that process in relation to writing The Passage of Love, because I recall... Two, two conversations with you about the book. Um, well, one, it, the, the, the book opens in the first person with the older um, Robert Cross. You can say old, it's all right. Uh, older, older. <laughs> I was very careful. Now, don't be careful. Um, you won't tell the it truth. It describes a, a, a visit of the older Robert Crofts uh, to do a gig in a women's prison. And immediately I remembered talking to Alex about his visit to a women's prison. And he, it had clearly moved him a great deal. And in part of that conversation, he said, I'm, I'm not going to write fiction anymore. I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm finished with fiction. That's one conversation. And then another conversation, two years later, I think, when Alex was actually writing this book, I got an email and said, I've thrown it all away. I've got 600 pages and I'm throwing it all away. And I, di I did not know how to reply to this email. 
I think I, I said something really banal like, are you sure? Um, but it, or how many sugars do you take? Yeah, quite, yeah, how many sugars do you take? Um, but I'm interested in, in the process. I mean, some of your books, like Autumn Lang and Cold Creek, seem to have been written rather like Frankie in here, in a, in a, a, a kind of solid burst mm -hmm. of energy, as mm -hmm. if the story's being given to you, yeah. whereas others entail more struggle. And is that... All mysterious to you. How do you, how? It depends how on the book. Yeah. It really does. I mean, um, I think of books, in a sense, they're a problem to solve. Cold Creek was given to me as a gift. It never was a problem. I was having lunch with a chap, a friend, in um, Castlemaine, where we live, which is a country town not far from Melbourne, or an hour and a half by road from Melbourne. And um, I had finished the previous book, which was Autumn Lang. And um, a dear friend had died, a writer, a biographer, who I'm sure most of you will have heard of, Hazel Rowley. And she died a couple of weeks before I was having lunch with this guy. And I, um, as soon, uh, Hazel and I were to meet two days before she died uh, in Melbourne to begin the celebration of her book about Roosevelt's. And... Um, yeah, and so we planned to have a dinner, just the pair of us, because we were uh, epistolary friends. We very, very seldom met, and never met just with just the two of us. And so we promised each other, we'll it was her idea, we'll go and have a dinner. You've got to find the restaurant. You know Melbourne better than I do now, and we'll have a dinner on our own, and we'll celebrate the, our friendship. So it was really... Great, and we always thought she was only in her 50s, 59, and, and I was older, much older than that um, then. And so we, we talked about old age, and she said, oh, God, I dread it. And I said, it's actually pretty good. It's been very productive. I'm enjoying it. I think as long as you're not ill, it's probably okay. You know, and there's no reason why you should be ill. You're a big, strong woman, and uh, you're productive and feisty and happy. As she, well, she wasn't that happy, actually, but um, trouble had come her way. But um, So the, we always thought I was going to die 20 years before she would. And then her sister told me she's dead. Um, so it was a terrible shock. And I had this little story in my mind that I thought I'd write after Autumn Lang. Um, and, I, um, and I, this chap said to me, so what are you going to do now? And I said, oh, I really think I should write a biography of um, Hazel Rowley. I sort of dreaded it in a way, I said, because it's going to be this great big sort of heavy academic bloody tome. I'm going to have to go to all the sources. I'm going to have to... It's all going to be... you know. It's going to, I've never written a biography, but why shouldn't I? Um, I just feel it needs to be done, you know. And I felt quite oppressed by this sense of the moral... I'm not doing it, by the way. But... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I said, but I've got this other little story, which I then told him. And I said, but I'm not going to do that. I really feel I should get on with Hazel. It's going to be such a big job. And I got up to leave the cafe. He said, you can't just leave that story. It's a really good story. He said, you know, like I do, that a story like that is a gift. Write the story. Write it as a short story. I said, oh, great, good idea. I'll do that this afternoon. So I went home and sat down, and normally I don't start work in the afternoon, I start work in the morning, about 8 o'clock. And I sat down and began writing the um, Cold Creek, 
which begins with some sort of quote from St. Paul, uh, which I really liked. And um, it didn't stop. It kept going. And the voice had me. I think it was Tim Winton who wrote about me being enthralled, enthralled. I've never heard a writer so enthralled to a voice, but I didn't mind. It was like being in love. You know, it was this mad, wonderful 10-week affair. And when it was over, I really missed it. I thought, oh, can I get another one? <laughs> I think I'm just very fortunate to have one like that in my life, sort of given to me whole. And Steph, my wife, who was following the story with me, said, um, I said to her one day, oh, Something awful is going to happen, I know. It just feels like something terrible is going to happen. And she said, you can't kill the little girl. Don't kill the girl. And I said, it's not me. I'm not doing it. I don't know what happens. I'm following the story. I don't know whether the little girl gets killed or not, but I won't be killing her. So we almost came to blows now. No, we didn't. We had a momentary separation. Steph was really worried that the little girl was going to get killed. I didn't know until it was over that, why me? Actually, I'll tell you, don't tell anybody this because you're not supposed to let people know these things. But um, I don't know why. Um, when I'd finished it, I left him in prison. If anybody's read Cold Creek, Steph said, no, no, you can't leave him in prison. I see them walking down the road with a little girl between them, the three of them holding hands as when he comes out of the prison. They're walking away from us down the road. I said, all right, all right, yeah, good. So I changed it. <laughs> so I, she let you off. I didn't really... I was going to leave the poor bastard in jail. So it seemed more realistic to me that you know, he'd end his days there. So that book was this gift that... Um, I couldn't predict it, and I had no control in a sense. Of course, I'm not being smart about this. There is some control over everything to a degree we know, even a child's tantrum. If they're having the 17th tantrum, by then you've learned something, <laughs> and you've got some element of control. But, um, and they maybe are beginning to get some element of control too. So we do, while these things engulf us and take us suddenly by the throat, we do, if they're repeated and hang in there, we get some element of control. I'm not being silly about it. But when I came to write the, um, whatever this one's called, The Passage of Love, <laughs> I was going to call it um, something else. What? <laughs> Landscape of Farewell. <laughs> but, but I already, You've already wrote, done that. I've already did that, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it, but, yeah. And, and it, it, I went, we, I went to the States with Steph to give a lecture at Vassar College and uh, there's a memorial lecture they do every year there and they pay you 10,000 US and pay your fare so I thought we might as well go you know, and do that and it was a sort of honour to be asked I guess and I have lovely friends there so we decided okay we'll do a trip down to New Mexico and meet some people while, while we're there uh, which we did and by the time we got back the women in the prison had read Cold Creek. It had been out only by then two or three months. But the, 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 um, the book club at the prison, there were about 12 women in it, had read it. And um, Josie, who runs the book club there, rang me and said, any chance of coming out and having a chat? They'd like to speak to you about the book. And I said, sure. 
So I went out thinking about an hour, hour maybe max. I was there for three or four hours all afternoon. And um, it was a hugely important moment for me um, for two really major sort of reasons. One was there was a woman and she was there when we arrived. And, and this is all in the book, actually. It's just word for word, really. Um, and she had read all my books and she had them all and she had them marked with post-it notes here and there and everywhere. And I thought, she's got some bigger argument that she's going to support with quotations in case I resist it. You know? <laughs> and I'm going to be reminded once again of things that I would say, no, no, I don't know anything about that. Well, why did you write this then? And, <laughs> yeah, so, but she wasn't like that at all. And but she, that she asked me, um, can I ask you a question? said, sure. She said, would you like... And they were just like a bunch of normal middle-class women. There was no evidence of them. They didn't have stripes with arrows or anything, you know, or shaved heads. In some ways, it would have been better if they had. It would have been more honest. The situation, in some ways, was a very dishonest situation. They had the appearance of a normal life. Scones and cream and jam, nice coffee, good coffee, and nice tea, good black English breakfast tea, and so on. But no, no, something is wrong here. Something is really wrong. And uh, she said to me, and as she said it, as she began to say it, and we all know that feeling of being caught off guard when our emotion kicks in, when we've thought we've got control of it, and then it suddenly grabs us. And she began to redden, and her eyes reddened, and tears began to sort of build in them. But she didn't weep. She hung on, and she said... I wonder if you could say something about a theme that I've noticed running through quite a few of your books. And I thought, yeah, I wonder what that theme is. And she said, the, the theme, initially, the theme of the absent mother. And then I didn't say anything. I was so taken by surprise. And then she said, you know, I mean, the influence of the absent mother. And I thought of this fragment these three fragments of my earliest memory. Anne Mann, who's a great friend, when talking about it to her, um, I, when I was 18 months old, my father took me to a children's home and left me there for a week while mum went into hospital to have my younger sister. I don't know, I suppose a lot of people did it then, I don't know. But how could you understand at 18 months what was happening? To me, it was abandonment forever, I guess. And Anne Mann said, yes, 18 months is the worst. I've always thought, well... How could I have a memory from then, 18 months old? She said, yeah, you would have. And fragments, three fragments. Never, they've never stitched together. They've never unwrapped. I've never been able to unfold them and develop them in any way. And she said, it's the worst moment. That's when the, the bond with your mother has reached its pinnacle. And um, that's the worst moment. And no one understood that. No one realised that. No one was being cruel. Um, and this woman said that to me, and that memory whacked into my mind. And I knew I'm going to have to tell her. And I hadn't told anybody. I'd never talked about it. I hadn't expressed it. As I began to express it, I thought, I wonder if it's going to unravel. And it didn't. It stayed in these... No, I didn't actually... I did tell her. In reality, in the book, I didn't. That's right. I knew there was, I was doing something wrong there. In the book, if I told her because we already had a sense of the climax of that scene with her, was when I realised that she and the other mothers were having a life sentence. 
Seven years, she was in there for seven years. Seven years away from your children. They were absent mothers. It was so moving. And they were silent, listening to her, because she'd hit the, the red button. And there weren't any other questions to be asked. So I, I did actually tell her what I later on when I wrote the book, I thought, no, that's, that's, there's no, they're going to lose the balance of the scene if you now go into this long business. So I, I told that to myself on the road later. <clears throat> but that was amazing. So that, to me, was a critically important moment, if you like, in my life, in my late life, when something like that was revealed to me, that these women were life, lifers, Sentenced to life. If you lose your children, young children presumably, they were only people with 40s and stuff like that, 7, 8, 10 years old, 15, maybe max, some even younger possibly. You've lost it forever. And you would always feel the awfulness, the terror in a sense of that. And uh, so it wasn't five years, three years, 10 years, seven years, it was life, which reminded me of a friend of mine who in his book appears as Martin Block. He was tortured by the Gestapo. And he told me about that. And um, he didn't give me the details of the actual physical torture. He told me of the effect of it. But he didn't say it was a life sentence. But then, of course, one reads, and I eventually read Jean Améry and his uh, uh, To the Mind's Limits, his book about having been tortured. And then he commits suicide after he's written the book. That'll do. I've done it now. I've said it now. I can kill myself now. I've paid my dues to that thing. Another life sentence, those sorts of traumas, um, one, life, one lifetime. That's the other thing the woman said to me. Uh, somewhere in one of your books, and I can't remember which one it was, she actually picked it out. Uh, one of your characters says, a lifetime is not long enough to get over or to forget such a thing. And, um, <clears throat> uh, and she said to me, do you think I will get over this? Do you think I will forget it? And she sat there looking me in the eye. And I thought, wow, I, I've got to be completely honest with this woman. And I said, no, I don't think so. How could you? You know, how could you forget it? But I said, I have a friend who was in Auschwitz. He's written three wonderful books. He wasn't going to forget that, was he? But he surmounted it. He made something powerful of it in the end. Transformed the memory, the experience, the trauma into something positive. Jacob Rosenberg. And um, I don't know whether that helped her or not. But, uh, and whether it's a matter of help, I don't know. Is it, it may not be a matter of help. It may be a matter of human communication being a value in itself. I don't know, but certainly we did communicate strongly to each other. And when I left the prison, as the door closed behind me, we'd, by then we'd been eating scones and drinking really good coffee. You know, better coffee than you get in Queensland. And, um, and better coffee than you get in Germany. But, uh, yeah, as I stepped out into the empty car park, because it was quite late by then, it hit me that all my life I had never really valued my liberty and that they, 
that the awful thing about was that they were locked in there and they were going to be counted again in a minute, you know. It's very powerful, and I thought Al, call myself Al, at, at moments of high emotion. <laughs> Al, did I really do that? I don't know. I might be lying. Um, I said, I realised you've got to step back and examine your life. You've got to do something different. You can't just sit down and write another bloody novel, you know. Hence my email to um, Adrian, not writing any more novels. I'm not writing any... I didn't, maybe I didn't say novels. Maybe I said fiction. fiction. I'm not writing any more fiction. Um, same thing. And, um, yeah, so I went off thinking uh, that I have a responsibility that I have never addressed. That was the strongest feeling I had. And that responsibility seemed to me to relate to Martin Block, who I call, who is really Max Blatt. I'm writing his book now, and I've been researching his life in various European archives for four years. And, um, yeah, so I thought that's what I was going to do. And then the reason why I chucked it all away, I did 150,000 words of that. And when we came back from the States, this is just slightly different to the, um, the story that um, Adrian has given us, but in spirit it's the same. I had a look at it and I thought, it's no good. It's just not right. Something wrong about it. And uh, my editor, my best editor, my first editor, my wife, Stephanie, who over the 40-odd years that we've been together has become a very, very acute editor of my work. And she will say, if it's not right, she will say something like, I mean, I'll give her the manuscript to read and she always wants to read it. Um, and I'll hear nothing for three days and then one morning I'll go in and it'll be on my desk, the manuscript's on my desk. And when I see her, she'll say, well, <coughs> are, we, are you um, cooking today, the dinner, or, or am I? Who's worrying about what we're having for dinner? I don't know, perennial question, like every day, what are we going to have for dinner? So we, have, we share it. Of course, why should one person have to worry about that every bloody day? So um, whatever it was, it certainly wasn't the book. And uh, then a couple of days later, still no word... I know better than to suggest there ought to be a word. We're having a coffee in a cafe that we like. And she says, the problem with that book, and she's sorted out, just getting ready to express it. And I can, I'll never forget when she said, uh, not about this particular book, but another one, it's not the book you've been telling me about. Which seemed to me, OK, I haven't got it yet. I've got to rewrite it. So I go back and I rewrite it. I don't mind how much I have to do. What's the point of leaving an unfinished or a poorly finished book and moving to something else? What, you can do that badly too? No, I don't mind the work. The work can take 10 years or it can take 10 weeks. I don't mind doing it. So she said, when I said, I'm not going to... She said, how's, how's it going? How's it look? You know, when we came back from New York and I started rereading what I'd written, I said, that's no good, I'm going to chuck it out, it doesn't, it just doesn't work. And she said, let me have a look at it, don't chuck it out. And she spent the next month uh, with it, working with it on her screen. And she knew the history of the book, which was this little story I just told you about the woman in prison and also my sense of responsibility about telling Max Blatt's story, I owed him so much, I should tell his story and the people I've met through him since... And he's always been my mentor, dead or alive, been dead since 1981. I still write in a sense with, would he admire this work? Would he admire this book? If not, 
not ready for Steph to read yet. <laughs> you know, and she'll find something else. But um, so she took it on, and she realised that what I'd done was something that I was unaware of. I, I'd kind of melded, not successfully, the two books, the Max Blatt book and the Robert and Lena book. And so she kind of took them apart, unknitted them, literally unknitted. I see, I see somebody unknitting. God, imagine knitting. And then unknitting. I can imagine it being a German word, unknitting. Like, God, only a German would be doing that. Jesus. I saw you knitting it. You were knitting it for weeks and it was a horrifying looking thing you were doing. Tiny little stitches and nothing happening. Now you're undoing it? Anyway, she unknitted it. She's amazing like that. A different, totally different attitude to those sort of things than mine. I could not have done it. And then she took out 85,000 words altogether, gave me the stump and said, see what you can do with that. So I actually threw that away. I did. But I didn't just throw it away on the day. I kind of, as I worked into it, it disappeared in front of me. So the book then got completely rewritten, rewritten without the confusion of the two stories. Which is the subtle story behind the brief emails to my friend Adrian Caesar, whose book, The White, by the way, was a... Um, I suppose it was the most powerful... Uh, innovative um, and simply done um, mixture of fact, historical fact, and imaginative recreation, in other words, fiction, uh, that I'd ever come across. It was so brilliantly done, utterly convincing. What were the private thoughts and events of these two um, explorers, polar explorers? They died, after all. They couldn't tell us what they thought. But um, that was beautiful. And that's how I met him, because I, I admired it greatly and got in touch with him and said, I love your book. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, Drusilla Majeska's book, another one that inspired me in the same way, was The Poppy, where she said it's a memoir. And uh, I thought it was misguided honesty, yeah, calling it a memoir. It was a novel, because it was based on a diary written by her mother, but her mother, she says, never kept a diary. So, you know, come on, it's a novel, it's a fiction, this is what it is. And it's, there's a difference between fiction, there's a, there's a difference between um, the, the memoir and the novel that is critical to the reader. The memoir sets a boundary for you. And it may be a book about a cricketer. And the cricketer might... And it's a memoir of his life as a cricketer. And he says he was playing in the MCG in, in 1987 when he was expected to do very well. And unfortunately, he was out for what it's called when you get the first ball knocks you out. And the consequences of that... You can go and check up on that. And the memoirist is saying to you... This is a memoir because... What I'm telling you is something that happened then, at that time, to those people in those circumstances. And if you want to, you can check. There will be sources. The novelist, the memoir sets boundaries that doesn't invite your story in. If you're reading a novel, your personal story is invited in. You become part of, as a reader, you read your own book. 
you become part of that story that you're reading. You bring your own story to it, and that's what you're invited to do because it's an imaginative creation based on an imaginative um, process. It's not based on a pack of lies. There's a distinction between lying and um, telling the truth but allowing fault. I mean, there's a woman in this book, The Passage of Love, called Wendy. And she's the first. Maybe I shouldn't. Do you think I should tell them this? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You think I should because tell them? I think They won't it, tell I, anybody, will they? No. And I also, yes, I mean, I, I think it's, it's really worth telling. Do you? And I think that, you know, I, I'd like to lead you on to, to, to talk about... You'd just the, like to the lead the paradox, me on. ..the paradox of fiction enabling you to tell the truth in a way that non-fiction sometimes doesn't allow. That there's a, well, par there's yeah. a paradox about... But, but what it is, what I was going to say, is there is a woman called Wendy, and I was having an interview with a chap at the library in um, Melbourne the other day, uh, and uh, he started talking about Wendy and saying, you know, OK, I, and I know it's, your, um, it's, uh, it's what Virginia Woolf called autobiographical fiction when she was confronted with criticism of To the Lighthouse. And people said, well, this is not really a novel, is it? It's just you and your mob down there at that house you've got down there near the beach. And she said, drawing herself up to a full six foot three, looking down her large nose at them, both eyes fixed somewhere just slightly above them, she said haughtily in her fascist tones, Autobiographical fiction. <laughs> and no one has ever doubted it since, except it still goes on. It still goes on. Anybody who is out for a clear definition between autobiography and fiction is in for a very disappointing life. <laughs> it's like the distinction between good and evil. There isn't one. We just know one and we know the other when we encounter them. Why are you lurking there? <laughs> because I have the worst job in the world at oh, the right. moment, which is to call time. Okay, well, he's he was going to lead me on. <laughs> I think we have to find out about Wendy first. You can? Yeah, yeah, and I loved Wendy's. I was quite disappointed when she left the story. Anyway, this guy was interviewing me, was saying... There's a person from your past. What happened to her? Can you tell me? You don't reveal it in the book, but you must have come across her again. And I said, I quite like you. You know, I've only known him for half an hour, but I said, you're somebody I sort of like and I trust you a bit, which is silly in a way, but still, I allow myself to be drawn into that. And I said, I don't want to lie to you. I made her up. <laughs> And he got up. He said, oh, Christ. oh, you didn't. Oh, not Wendy. Oh, no. I oh, said, I'm, oh, I'm really disappointed, you know. I said, look, it doesn't mean she doesn't exist. She exists in our imaginations. And obviously, she seems authentic to you. Um, oh, he looked really <laughs> unhappy. I couldn't cheer him up after that. <laughs> It's not that I just made all of her up. I mean, she was parts of, other, parts of women that neither, none of them would have fitted, um, I guess. And I don't know how self-conscious I was in...
doing that. It wasn't a matter of Lego, you know, a bit of yellow top and a blue side and a red brick here. Do you have a little bridge there, maybe? No, it was somehow came together. But yes, she, she did not have a real existence in the memoir. In my memoir, if there were such a thing, she would not be present. I'm really disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to just deal with that somehow. I know. I loved Wendy. While I'm getting over my disappointment, and before we have um, some refreshments downstairs, would any of you like to ask Alex a question? Be brave. Thank you. There's Uh, I'm interested whether you ever wake up in the morning and uh, your subconscious has uh, provided you with a character or a story. I usually wake up about three or four o'clock in the morning, get up and go to the toilet <laughs> and come back to bed and can't get back to sleep. So I lie there thinking of all the ghastly things, like the people I really don't like, the neighbour who will only speak to us through her lawyer... Um, how bad can this get? And um, could I kill her? I don't suppose I could. <laughs> I just don't want to go to prison for the rest of my life. And anyway, I'd feel awful if I did kill someone. But you lie there and I think, worry about my son. He's a banker. He's, maybe he could get the sack because banks are starting to do their thing again, you know. And my daughter who lives in Berlin and is a DJ. And what's it, How's it going to go? Is she ever going to come home or is it she going to marry Marto, the German guy she's with? And No. And have we got any other questions? This is not really about your novel, but I, I enjoyed reading the Canberra Times article um, where you said you've got quite a few more years of writing ahead of you. I haven't seen um, it, so you're ahead of me. No, I don't read the Canberra oh, okay. Times. So there was some, some, some chance meeting with, a, with an, an Indian man who, who, who said to you that you were going to live till 94. Yeah, I did. Um, I did have a meeting. I did tell that to somebody. I can't remember if it was Jason Steger or Stephen Romo. Yeah. Was that one of them? Yeah. They make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do. I the Indian man too. Yeah. <laughs> he, he might tell you you've got 18 months to go. You never know. You don't want to know that. No, I mean, they do. I mean, Stephen has me um, asking for a Bundy and Coke with him in a bar. I've never been with him in a bar, and I have never drunk Bundy and Coke. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a drink until Steph's brother and uh, sister-in-law, who are kind of a bit odd, slightly bogan, and um, they go for Bundy and Coke and wonder why I don't. So God knows, where'd he get that from? I did have a couple of friends say to me, Bundy and Coke? Well, it's just, he made it up. He might have sincerely made it up out of a number of different bits and pieces and just the way I made up Wendy in a sense. You know, I mean, I, I do believe in Wendy. I believe in Wendy. Yeah, that's the name yeah. of the, it's, it's, it's the title of the next book, I believe in Wendy. <laughs> I was going to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on Sorry. That, on that note, I can promise you no Bundy and Coke downstairs. But um, 
if you would like to join us for a glass of wine and some nibbles, that would be lovely. We'll continue the conversation. Alex has agreed to sign copies of The Passage of Love this evening and it's available from the bookshop. We've had the most wonderful journey this evening. I think I've felt really dreadful bringing it to an end. I think we could go for another couple of hours quite easily. Yeah, to recover more matters. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we've been to New York, we've been to Canberra. We're not going to hold your blaming of Canberra against you at all. Well, I, I, got, I did all sorts of things when I was young that I don't do now, and that was 50 years ago. I, but you still come to Canberra. I really love the library and I've done some good things here and I've really enjoyed... And the bookshops, I have to say, and, you know, I meet lovely people, so... <laughs> I don't know. So please join me in thanking Alex Miller and Adrian Caesar for a wonderful evening. And we'll see you in the foyer.